the theory that greenhouse gases causes global warming is the only one talked about in the press because it quite literally is the policy of the press to only talk about it. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio Season 2. It is February 17, 2007, and this week our guest is Jerry E. Smith, author of Weather Warfare, The Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. If you're a long-time Benall of America Audio listener, you may recall that we had Jerry E. Smith on the program last year at around this time to discuss his previous book, Secrets of the Holy Lance. This year he comes at us with a whole new book and a whole new area of research. We're going to talk about weather modification ranging from the rainmakers of the 1890s all the way up to the UN's legislation on environmental modification and what's wrong with it, the military studies on how to use weather as a weapon, some in-depth discussion on HARP and what it might be used for, as well as a thorough conversation on the contrail versus chemtrail controversy and how it all might be related to controlling the weather. We're looking at a variety of facets of esoterica that exist on the peripheral that for the first time we're going to really delve into here on Banal of America Audio. Harp, chemtrails, contrails, and weather modification. We're going to dig into all that this week here with Jerry E. Smith, author of Weather Warfare, the Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jerry E. Smith, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Jerry E. Smith has been a writer, editor, and activist for over three decades. In 1991, Mr. Smith and Jim Keith, author of Black Helicopters Over America, Strike Force for the New World Order, and numerous other conspiracy and mind control books, founded the National UFO Museum, New Farm, in Reno, Nevada. From 1991 to 1994, Mr. Smith was the executive director of New Farm, while Mr. Keith acted as the chairman of the board. In addition to his administrative duties of running the day-to-day operations of New Farm, Jerry also edited and wrote for the organization's quarterly journal, Notes from the Hangar. At the same time, Jerry E. Smith worked as an editor, graphic artist with Jim Keith's magazine, Dharma Combat, the magazine of spirituality, reality, and other conspiracies. He also served variously as managing editor and art director from Dharma Combat's inception in 1998 until Jim's untimely death in 1999. Today, he lives and continues to write in Reno, Nevada. He is the author of Harp, Ultimate Weapon of the Conspiracy, the co-author of Secrets of the Holy Lance, and the author of the new book, Weather Warfare, The Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. His website is www.jerryesmith.com, J-E-R-R-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H.com, and I definitely recommend you check out our previous interview on Banal of America Audio Season 1, where we had a lengthy discussion on Jerry's early days with Jim Keith. It's a real insight into the late, great Jim Keith that you're only going to get from someone who grew up as a childhood friend of Jim Keith. Jerry tells us some amazing stories. That's in Banal of America Audio Season 1. So if you want to find out more about Jerry E. Smith outside of what he tells us 
For background in this week's interview, definitely check out the previous episodes of BOA Audio with Jerry E. Smith. They're fascinating in and of themselves. But before you do that, let's rock and roll here with the latest from Jerry E. Smith, Weather Warfare, the military's plan to draft Mother Nature. This interview was recorded on January 17, 2007. Jerry E. Smith on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. We had such a great time with Jerry E. Smith last year talking about Secrets of the Holy Lance that when I found out he had a new book coming out that uh, came out this past winter or so, I said we got to get Jerry E. Smith back on the show and talk about the new book. It is Weather Warfare, the Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature, and it is a fantastic book. I just finished it up last night. Yeah, this Weather Warfare is quite a departure from the Holy Lance, and it's going to be exciting. So, Jerry E. Smith, welcome back to Been All of America Audio. Well, hi, Tim. Good to be back with you. Um, and, of course, you can find out about Jerry E. Smith's book, Weather Warfare, at his website, jerryesmith.com, J-E-R-R-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H.com. Check that out for all the information on how to get the book. For starters, Jerry, let's uh, let's sort of do a little bit of a bio background. And, of course, listeners of Been All of America Audio have heard you before. They can check out our previous interview for a tremendous amount of depth on your bio and background that we covered uh, in that first interview. But catch up the people who haven't heard that one yet. Well, uh, I've been a professional writer since 1969 when I sold my my first book, uh, and I've been pretty much working writing full time, uh, off and on. I, I think I've retired five times, and of course I can't quite make it stick, so I end up back in the in the labor pool. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was an anti-war activist in the 60s. As the war wound down, I became a, an environmental activist. Uh, there are a couple of key things that happened to me in the middle 70s. I read Gary Allen's None Dare Call It Conspiracy mm-hmm. and uh, met Walter Bovard and read his book uh, uh, Operation Mind Control. And uh, for those who don't know, those who haven't read it, I highly recommend uh, Gary Allen's None Dare Call It Conspiracy. It's a, it probably is the single best book on conspiracy theory and conspiracy reality in that Gary Allen was a, uh, a liberal journalist in, in L.A. who got sick of hearing John Birch Society stuff, so he decided to prove the Birches were all crazies. So he went and got their material and then started started researching it to prove they were wrong and discovered they were right, that there really is a, uh, a cadre, a cabal of the incredibly rich and powerful at the top of, of society mm-hmm. trying to maneuver us into a global government for, for their benefit. Yeah. Um, uh, that, uh, that sent me into researching conspiracies, and I've been researching them ever since, and watching um, the the, the uh, global geopolitics. Uh, I've read, you know, uh, the Negro Brzezinski and um, Kissinger. Mm-hmm. Kissinger just absolutely scared the bejesus out of me. First book I read by Kissinger, he promoted that we could fight a nuclear war and win. <laughs> You know, yeah, we want that kind of person running the the, the world. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Walter Bowart uh, revealed that the CIA did indeed have a, a real mind control programs, and not just little mind control programs, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over decades dumped into a wide variety of programs, including uh, there were uh, 
MK Ultra alone was 149 subprograms conducted across America in hospitals, universities, etc. Very scary stuff, and so that got me researching mind control and so forth. So when uh, 1996, uh, I got a chance to write a book about HARP. I uh, my first. Now, HARP is the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. Yeah. Uh, when I first heard that the purpose of HARP was to bathe the Earth in ELF, extremely low frequency radio waves, at exactly the same frequency that the human brain worked at, I kind of flipped out, thinking, my yeah. God, if these guys, if HARP is exactly what it says it is, if you just have some propeller heads up in Alaska playing with antennas and thinking they're injecting it into the atmosphere and they're actually bathing us in known brain entrainment frequencies, they could inadvertently, accidentally, without having a clue they were doing it, disrupt mental function across half the planet. And if they did know what they were doing, if there was a covert agenda, this thing could be the ultimate weapon. Yeah. And my uh, my first title for the book was Harp, the Ultimate Weapon, question mark, but the, um, the publisher wanted a conspiracy theory book, so of the conspiracy got tacked on the end, which is why it's Harp, the ultimate weapon of the conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and the new book, of course, uh, Weather Warfare, uh, the military's plan to draft Mother Nature, that sort of grew out of it as an extension of the original Harp book. Exactly. Uh, the, the original Harp book, I got the go-ahead from Ron Bonds at Illuminate in 1996, wrote a first draft, sent it to Ron, and he hated it and canceled the project which uh, actually turned out good for me because it was going to be originally a, a, a work for hire. I was going to get $1,000, and that was it. Uh, by, by, by Ron canceling it, I sat on the manuscript for about a year, and then I remembered David Hatcher Childress at Adventures of Limited Press. And David was looking for a, a book on harp when I contacted him at the end of 97, and he said, yes, 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 I want it, send it to me. So a couple of months, months later, I sent him a, a cleaned-up version, and I didn't really have time to change the book, so I didn't change the title either, and I regret that now. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, uh, David rushed that book into print in 98. And uh, uh, in 2000, I spoke here in Kempton, Illinois, at the uh, AUP Adventures Unlimited Press World Headquarters mm -hmm. uh, at our annual conference. And, it, and at that time, he asked me to write a follow-up book. And uh, that's when I started researching weather warfare, and I've been researching. Re I I spent you know six years, uh, five five years between two thousand uh, six years between two thousand and two thousand and five researching it, and that doesn't count the three years I spent on Harp. Um, it, it's a great book, uh, especially like you said, the, the research, the aspects of that, and uh, it, it's very in depth, and you and you back up what you say with with. Uh, quotes from white papers and government documents and and uh, articles in the news and stuff like that. So I was very impressed with that. It wasn't just you uh, talking and no without without backing it up. So I was very impressed by that. Well, thanks. You know that one of my biggest complaints as I was researching this book mm -hmm. is I would find websites, uh, particularly chemtrail websites, that would have scores or hundreds of photographs of chemtrails and a couple of pages of somebody ranting about what he was looking at yeah. and explaining to you, well, they are doing this to you, yeah. but with no proof, no evidence, no citations, just 
just rant. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, early on in the book, um, I realized that I was going to have to go beyond that. That yeah. uh, that that sort of stuff is the the worst. The it, it makes the National Enquirer look good. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's another aspect of the book that I did enjoy a lot uh, because I only really know peripherally about Harp and the chemtrail contrail controversy and and weather warfare and Edmond in general. Um, so the book really caught me up to speed on a lot of that stuff that is uh, that is like a standard bearer in, in esoterica nowadays, especially harp. Thank you for that because it was a, an education in that aspect, and that would definitely recommended for the listeners who who only have really scratched the surface of these topics and want to dig into it more. Cool, and um, uh, you know I keep it at a uh, an introductory level, yeah. uh, assuming that whoever picks this book up, some of the uh, a large number of people picking this book up are going to be completely unfamiliar with this material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I, I keep it as uh, at, you know, at, at 101, but at the same time, I try to give ev- uh, the, the outer, uh, I try to give everything that is knowable on the subject, knowable and provable on mm-hmm. the subject. So uh, the, the harp section is the most up-to-date uh, uh, harp uh uh, in terms of a book, this is now the most up-to-date book on Harp. It's the only book written since Harp was was completed. It's the only one that has what the the, the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects uh, Agency, says they've done with it. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's sort of dig into the book here. Uh, the first part of the book that I really enjoyed a lot and, and stuck out for me was. Uh, your description and recounting of the days of the Rainmakers in America in the 1890s, um, which was exciting because I had never really heard about that, and, and you brought a lot of depth to that story, and it sounded just to be like a fascinating time in American history. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that Rainmakers era, especially around the Kansas and all that was going on down there? Yeah. You know, uh, um, Harry Nielsen is one of my favorite singer-songwriters, and he wrote a, a great song about the Rainmakers, so I've been aware of them since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, the, 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 the scientific era of, of intentional weather modification really got started with the American Civil War. During the Civil War, there were great battles that were, that many people noticed were followed by great rainstorms. Yeah. And, uh, uh, there was a lot of speculation as to what had caused this. Uh, we now know today that what had happened was that the, the smoke and dust from the battle uh, uh, provided nucleating particles that uh, that moisture accrued around, and so grew into raindrops, which fell as rain. Uh, at the time, they weren't really quite sure, and uh, a uh, U.S. general uh, was one of uh, a group of people who speculated on the concussion theory that uh, that the that the pressure changes due to the explosions were what caused uh, the, the rainstorm, and. The general uh, got the very first patent issued by the United States Patent Office for a rainmaking uh, technology based on the concussion theory. So the United States Army has been involved in intentional weather modification since day one. Yeah. Now um, uh, there were um, there were droughts in the 1890s, and there were a number of people who who. Who fiddled with ideas of how to uh, how to intentionally cause rain, and there was uh, there's evidence that they were were successful at it, mm-hmm. um, and and this uh, this uh, one of the aspects of this that I point out is that there was no legal foundation for tort 
related to it, uh, which is to say, if I make it rain here, and you live downwind of here, and it doesn't rain where you are, have I stolen rain from you? Yeah. Uh, have I injured you? Do you have standing to sue me? If you sue me, how do we determine how much I injured you? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it has been 130 years, and the courts have still not resolved this issue. Yeah. And part of the reason for this is because the mainstream meteorolo meteorological community uh, refuses to acknowledge the ability to intentionally alter the weather. Therefore, they will not give expert testimony to the court, so the court has to go on supposition, and he says, she says, which don't work in court. And so it has um, has ground to a, to a nowhere over 130 years. Yeah, and that was one of the uh, fascinating aspects uh, for me, like a revelation in a way when I read the book, was that uh, this environmental modification, which is sort of like the, the more realistic term, I guess, for, for weather warfare or weather tinkering, has been going on for uh, quite a long time. It's not just when you first hear about it, it's almost uh, dismissed in the mainstream and, and even in some circles of esoterica as something that, that you know, is, is all supposition, when in fact there's quite a history of, of, of people tinkering with the weather in the last hundred years to try and figure it out. Oh, absolutely. That that really is the crux of the of the problem we have today. In that, um, be, between the, uh, the the media laughing at the the, the, the rainmakers from 1890 to present time, yeah, and the scientific the the hindbound cranial rectal inverted scientific community refusing to acknowledge how much can be done, uh, and the media's love of, of science fiction and nonsense, mm -hmm. um, we have had the American public has been educated to believe that it's all sci-fi. Yeah. And um, I believe a lot of this is intentional mm -hmm. because the military are engaged in this activity and they do not want to be tapped for doing it. Exactly. Um, uh, there is a there was a watershed point in in, in America, uh, and that was the uh, Enma Treaty. Mm -hmm. the uh, The Enma Treaty uh, was in response to uh, the, U the U.S. Army's uh, and Air Force's uh, use of weather modification and other environmental modification techniques during the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, the the treaty is, is the technical name for it is the Convention on the Prohibition of Military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques. It went into effect in 1978. Uh, this was directly in response to the discovery that the U.S. Uh, uh, via Operation Popeye had used cloud seeding techniques over the uh, over Vietnam over the Ho Chi Minh Trail in hopes of extending the monsoon season and turning the Viet Cong resupply route into a hopeless quagmire of mud. Simultaneously, they uh, they had realized that the jungle provided shelter and sustenance to the enemy, and that if the jungle were gone, the enemy would be deprived of this shelter and sustenance. Yeah. And so they poured literally millions of gallons of defoliants, Agent Orange, Agent White, etc., over the jungles in Vietnam in an effort to eradicate the jungle. Now, uh, uh, a, 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 a scary footnote on this is that to this day, many areas in Vietnam are incapable of growing crops, and children are born with deformities. 
And uh, the the I have read reports that the avian flu that the world is is girding its loins to defend itself against <laughs> first appeared in those areas. That 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 the avian flu is a, um, a mutation caused by the use of the defoliants during the Vietnam War. Uh, so uh, our uh, our Enma tinkering is going to come around and bite us in the butt here pretty pretty soon. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, when uh, when the word got out about Operation Popeye, etc., uh, Senator Claiborne Pell, Democrat, Rhode Island, started investigating it in '72, and uh, called in the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, who flat out lied to him, said, no, no, this is nonsense. We're not doing any of that kind of thing. Two years later, Melvin Laird has left his position as uh, secretary of the DOD and has is uh, uh, special counsel to Nixon, who's fighting for his political life in the wake of the Watergate. Uh, uh, a letter from Laird gets leaked to the press in which he admitted that he'd lied to Congress and that uh, Operation Popeye was real, at which point Pell uh, can no longer subpoena Laird, so he subpoenas some guys uh, from from the Pentagon. The Pentagon stooges troop over and say, "Yeah, yeah, we did it, yeah." Uh, and Pell's committee discovers that they that they used uh, forty one thousand units of cloud seeding materials. Oh wow! Uh, the, over an eight year period and spent twenty one point six million dollars on the project. Wow! Uh, Laird is is just dumbfounded by this and demands to know what the hell else are you guys doing? Yeah. And in doing so, he, uh, Laird discovers a, a wide a wide number of crazy NMOD environmental modification things that they were working on, including intentionally thinning out the ozone layer over the enemy so as to increase illnesses among the enemy population by allowing too much solar energy to reach them. This is, this is criminal. I mean, this is truly criminal. Pell screamed from the rooftops that we have to stop this. We have to prevent the world's militaries from doing this, and that's why the NMOD Treaty was passed in 78. Now, I say this was a major watershed event for the U.S. Yeah. Prior to the signing of this treaty, the United States federal government was spending upwards of $20 million a year and had 700 degreed scientists working on NMOD technology. Mm -hmm. After we signed the treaty, the federal budget went to zero, and all these jobs disappeared. Now I maintain that they didn't uh, that the U.S. that Uncle Sam didn't say, "Oh well, guess we can't do that." Yeah. Uh, uh, but actually, it went dark. It went covert. It went mm -hmm. to black budget. Now the curious thing, and the way I begin the book is with a quote from the Secretary of Defense, uh, William S. Cohen, in 1997. Yeah. Now, this is 20 years after the NMOD Treaty. This means it's about 25 years after um, uh, the DOD was playing with these technologies. And keep in mind that the acquisition pipeline, from the time that it takes a guy in the Pentagon saying, you know what, in about 30 years, we're going to need a gizmo that does X, mm -hmm to the time that there actually is X in the hands of a grunt in the field somewhere. Yeah. The average length of time is 26 years. So this is right on the timeline. Mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense Cohen speaking at a conference on terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, and U.S. strategy in his capacity as the, DO, as the Secretary of the DOD. So you can take this as an official position of the United States. Mm -hmm. So in 1997, the United States government believed, quote, 
others are engaging even in an eco-type of terrorism, whereby they can, can alter the climate, set off earthquakes, volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves. It's real, and that's the reason why we have to intensify our efforts. Now, if the Secretary of Defense says that, I think we should take that very seriously, yeah. uh, especially as the military are often accused of accusing others of technologies they themselves possess. Exactly. So I believe that the entire book, Weather Warfare, the Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature, begins with that quote and is a 400-page investigation into whether or not that quote is true and, it, and, and spends 400 pages proving that, in fact, it is true. And uh, one part of the NMOD legislation that really uh, probably hindered the whole, the whole cause in the first place is once it all went black, then chances are they could do even more devious stuff and, and throw more money at it because it wasn't under the scrutiny of, of what was going on in the public eye. Exactly. Exactly. One of the big, I'm not sure what, it's a white paper or a research paper or what, but one of the big uh, documents that, that is referenced a lot in the book that seems pretty, pretty scary in and of itself is Air Force 2025, Owning the Weather. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this, where it came sure. from, and the intentions behind it and all that good stuff? Okay. Um, a couple of times over the last 30 years, the, uh, the Secretary of the Air Force has tasked the Air College with looking into the future and seeing what technologies, what policies, what, what we need to be the dominant air and space force in the future. Yeah. Uh, the current version is called Air Force 2025. And Air Force 2025 was written by students and professors at the U.S. Air Force Air College with consultation with outside experts, professors, uh, business owners, and so forth. Yeah. I believe it's 41 separate papers comprising something like 3,700 pages. Oh, wow. And one of the papers is weather as a force multiplier, owning the weather in 2025. Mm -hmm. And it expressly states, well, there is this UN treaty that says we can't do this if it's widespread, long-lasting, or severe. Yeah. But as long as we remain below the threshold, we can tinker with Mother Nature all we like. And, and it lists uh, about... 30, 40 different tinkerings with Mother Nature that they could do and remain below the threshold to, to invoke uh, a treaty violation. And Air Force 2025, as I said, is just the most current version. Before it was SpaceCast 2020, and SpaceCast 2020 also had a paper on the weather and came to the same conclusion, that in every future scenario we care to look at, whether under our control has to be an operational given. Yeah. And you sort of reverence also uh, some of the problems here with the NMON legislation, and a little throwback to that, is that uh, there's these thresholds that, that you can easily sort of skirt around, and also that there's no teeth to the NMON legislation. It's almost a PR move in a way, because no one's ever uh, accused another country of using it, and even if they did, the, the methodology of determining that sort of thing is a quagmire in and of itself. Exactly, exactly. The NMON treaty requires that the treaty signatories have a conference no less often than once every 10 years to analyze how, how well it's doing. The first conference was, five, was a year late in getting off the ground. The second conference never happened. We're now up to the third conference, which has never happened. A group of um, left-wing organizations who collectively call themselves the civil society 
held it in absentee, if you will. Yeah. And they did some some brilliant analysis of it, and so I pick up their work because I, mean, I don't see any point in reinventing the wheel. Yeah. They they just rip this thing many well-deserved new uh, new ones, and uh, I simply reported on their findings. One of the things that, that I found personally distressing is that the NMOD treaty has been repeatedly violated, and and nobody's done anything about it for one reason or another. For example, during Gulf War One, Saddam Hussein repeatedly violated the treaty, two major violations where he set 700-plus uh, oil wells on fire, uh, creating this vast plume of smoke intentionally as a, as a get back. Another thing he did is at the beginning of the event, uh, he uh, opened the cocks on the, the, the pipes that are supposed to load the ships. They just opened it with no ship there so that the oil would pour into the Gulf and go down the Gulf Coast to Kuwait, which gets its drinking water from desalination plants that take their water out of the Gulf. And this was intentionally using the, the oil, hopes of hoping of clogging the, the, the desalination plants and, yep. and stealing drinking water from the Kuwaitis. Saddam Hussein was not busted for it simply because he was not a signatory to, 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 the, to the convention. Therefore, he hadn't violated it because he hadn't agreed not to. Yeah. The U.S. and Colombia are signatories to it, and they are pouring defoliants in violation of it over Colombia in the war on drugs, which is also uh, a suppression of insurgency because the insurgents who are fighting the Colombian government are financing their war with the, with the sale of drugs. But since Colombia is nuking itself, they get away with it. Exactly. Yeah. The Enmod legislation is kind of a fruitless task in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was a, it was a, exactly. It was a feel-good measure, a feel-good measure that has failed miserably to, to make anybody feel good uh, from about day two on. Yeah. It did drive U.S. research in the field underground, so it had a very negative effect. Yeah, yeah. And like we talked about here with your chapter on HARP, it is really amazing and it covers it in a lot of depth. Uh, one thing that stuck out to me when I was reading the HARP chapter is uh, you discuss your change in position after the original HARP book. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, the uh, the first book on HARP was Angels Don't Play This HARP, Advances in Tesla Technology by Dr. Nick Vegich and Gene Manning. Mm -hmm. And I read that book, uh, and uh, I was part of the research team around Jim Keith, and I was helping Jim Keith write uh, Black Helicopters Over America and a couple of other of his books. And we had pulled together this research team, and they were all buzzing about HARP. And... Um, when I when I heard about, as I said at the beginning of this of this conversation, when I heard that it was designed to bathe the world in ELF, I I flipped. Yeah. And Nick and Gene touch on it, but they don't really go in depth in it. They have one short chapter on the subject with the with the lovely name of "Entrain Your Brain to Go Insane." <laughs> For me, the big problem with with angels is that Nick really covered what, where, when, how, but left out who and why. And so when um, when I got the go-ahead from Ron Bonds to write a book, the, the obvious task was to address who and why that Nick and Gene had left out. Yeah. And Nick was convinced that it was a ground-based Star Wars weapon system, and I saw a lot of potential in both uh, mind control and weather control. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
as the the decade has progressed since since we wrote our books, Nick is now convinced that it is a mind control device, and I'm convinced that it's now, I'm now convinced it's a ground based Star Wars weapon system, <laughs> which I think is bloody hilarious. Yeah, that kind of touches on a, a, one of the parts I really enjoyed about the Harp chapter is that you really break that fourth wall down and sort of bring yourself into it and, and discuss uh, the sort of the, the making of the original Harp book and also the fervor. That was uh, Harp when it broke into the mainstream, or when people started hearing about Harp, all of a sudden it became uh, quite a little phenomenon in and of itself. That was one of the things that, that, that really bugged me, and you can see this, that it is slopped over into chemtrails after Harp, mm-hmm. uh, that, that it, Harp became the answer for everything that, bumped, uh, that went bump in the night. Yeah. Uh, anything that could not be immediately explained by any sort of uh, scientific rational, anything you could not find a, a research paper on and say, see, that's it, um, it became lumped into Harp. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, and I think one of the reasons why Nick Baggage is convinced it's a mind control device is because there are so many thousands of people out there who are and have – and uh, I know that I was getting about a letter a week from a mind control victim or somebody who thought they were a mind control victim saying, Harp is controlling my life. Wow. And Nick was getting 10 a day. Oh, wow. And uh, Nick uh, embraced it. Nick, uh, Nick went into researching it and found a lot of evidence that that could be it. Me, I, I ran screaming from it, I'm afraid. It was, <laughs> it was too subjective and too difficult to prove anything. Mm-hmm. Most of the paperwork, if you will, most of the scientific stuff that's available in the open literature is only only tangentially connected and decades out of date. Yeah. You know, the, the paperwork on this, the paper trail on this ends now at about 1980. Uh, when I was researching HARP in, in 95, the paper trail ended around early 70s. And so I could prove that between 1947 and 19. 77, there was a strong interest in this technology and that a lot of work had been done, particularly um, Fry and Shaffitz and their uh, voice-to-skull techniques are, are really quite frightening. The ability to put words in people's heads is real. It may be, you know, there undoubtedly are any number of delusional people out there hearing voices, but not all of the people hearing voices are delusional. Yeah, yeah. And you do a great job here of uh, something that I had never known, and you introduced some interesting facts here about you follow these patents uh, that were used for the creation of HARP and how uh, they were owned by companies, and then it sort of followed along a little path here where, like, a small company had the patents that were used to make HARP, and then uh, that company was bought by another company, and another company bought that, and every time the, the... the patents changed hands, the contracts changed hands from the government, but the government claims it wasn't using the, the patents that were used for HARP or something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Can you exactly. on that? Now, uh, and actually it was Nick Begich who, who spotted this, and I have oh, okay. to give him his due. Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, Nick spotted this uh, and mentioned it uh, in the first couple of, uh, of uh, patents. Uh, uh, of uh, ownership changes, and it's uh, it's changed since again, and the and the pattern repeats itself, which is to say, there is this suite of twelve patents uh, that were granted to APTI, Advanced Power Technologies Incorporated, or Arco Power Technologies Incorporated, depending on which year you're you're looking at them in, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the APTI patents are for a antenna field 40 miles on a side that whose primary purpose is to 
use up a great deal of natural gas so that Arco can show a profit. Arco spun off APTI and sold it to E-Systems. E-Systems was bought by Raytheon. British Aerospace became BAE. Yeah. BAE opened a North American wholly owned subsidiary, BAE Systems North America. BAE Systems North America and Raytheon have a director interlock, which is to say guys who sit on the board of directors of one sit on the board of directors of the other as well. Yeah. And if we're concerned about our advanced technology and secrets going to, to the Brits, we got a big problem because uh, between BAE Systems North America and uh, Raytheon, uh, that locks up about uh, uh, something like 80% of, of America's uh, advanced uh, weapon-making uh, technology. And uh, in a little uh, paper shuffle, uh, Raytheon sold E-Systems to BAE Systems. So, And at each point along these lines, the patents, the intellectual property, APTI, moved first from APTI, then to E-Systems, then to Raytheon, then to BAE Systems. And each time the, 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 the patents moved, the contract was awarded to whoever owned those patents because HARP is unique. HARP is the only one that can do what it does because it uses those patents to do it. Yeah. And so the, uh, the only people who can build HARP are the people who own those patents. And yet at the University of Alaska, at the Air Force, at the Navy, all the spokes droids say, oh, no, 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 HARP is not the, the, the APTI Skybuster. Oh, no, no, that's not us. We're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, uh, very strange, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and as you said, you ultimately come down on the side of HARP uh, being used as a space defense initiative, an SDI, Star Wars system. Can you talk about what led you to that belief and, and why you put that as the as the primary uh, use for HARP. Mostly because yeah. of who has been running it. In 2002, the program was turned over to DARPA. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA is the 800-pound gorilla in the military acquisitions uh, zoo. Yeah. DARPA has a fairly unique track record, and what DARPA does things that are what they call high-risk, high-payoff. Mm -hmm. And if anybody who has read any of the stuff on HARP knows that HARP, at least uh, in theory, has the potential to, like, end life on Earth. <laughs> yeah. You know, reverse the poles, a number of things. And so you talk about high risk. Also, uh, if HARP really is uh, SDI, if SDI works, that gives the U.S. first strike capability. If the U.S. has first strike capability and we can prevent the enemy from responding, that makes us the bad guy. That makes us, uh, that, that destabilizes. I mean, that completely trashes mad mutual assured destruction. Yeah. If we can turn this into a one-sided adventure in which we can fry them and they can't fry us, that that really destroys the whole of Cold War detente. And while the USSR may no longer be with us, the Chinese still are. Mm -hmm. Communism is not dead. Communism has uh, put on a nice new suit, and in some parts of the world the suit is very green. But... Um, uh, it is uh, it is far from dead and is far from willing to roll over and allow the uh, the, the neocons to establish the American century. 
And one uh, one aspect of this uh, space defense initiative possibility that you discussed, and I was, I was surprised to see you touch on it in the book, but I was happy to see it also because I haven't really heard much uh, much research into it, was the, the Columbia crash and, right. and how that may uh, tip the hand that it is a space defense initiative. Can you talk a little about that? Exactly. Well, uh, it, it comes down to DARPA on their website lists four things they've done with HARP. And the first item, it's curious, they have a, a list of four things they've done with HARP in three bullets. And so this indicates that the first bullet, which has two items, you use it one way and you get two effects. Yeah. And these two effects are, are seem rather radically uh, a rather rather radical departure because one it happens at the bottom of the ocean and the other happens at, uh, outside the atmosphere. But the, there is a, a link between them, and I, can, I think I can explain it. And this is the first bullet says communicate with deeply submerged submarines and reduce the populations of charged particles in the radiation belts. Now, what happens is, is that HARP, as a field of antennas on the ground in southeastern Alaska, is now the world's largest radio broadcasting station with an effective radiated power of 3.6 million watts. Mm -hmm. But it's not designed to broadcast for human ears. It's designed to inject all that energy into a spot at the top of the atmosphere. And the spot, according to some of the papers I've read, is about 12 miles across by about 2.5 miles deep by 50 or 90 miles up, depending on which mode they're using. Yeah. Now, when you inject 3.6 million watts into a spot that small, that heats the spot by several thousand degrees and literally blows the molecules of the atmosphere apart. When they blow apart, it creates a couple of phenomena, one of which is the, the binding force of the molecule giving off energy, gives off energy in, in, a, in a variety of ways, including in the radio frequency range as ELF, extremely low frequency radio waves, which penetrate deep into the sea. And so by pulsing the way that they blow apart the, the atmosphere, they can make the atmosphere do a, uh, do a staccato effect, do a... A, 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 a virtual Morse code, yeah. which the submarines can can read. Now, the other thing is that when you blow the molecules apart, you create a plasma, an electrically charged gas. Mm -hmm. And because of where it is in the atmosphere, which is at the very top of the atmosphere, it induces convection warm rises, and it goes out into space. And since it's out in space, there's nothing to stop it, and it just keeps going until it hits the magnetic lines of force and gets trapped between the magnetic lines of force, which happens to be where the Van Allen belts are. Yeah. And so this plasma goes from the top of the atmosphere all the way out to the Van Allen belts, which means that it creates a plume of electrically charged gas that anything traveling through could be destroyed by basic Star Wars ground-based weapon shield. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's probably more likely to be used for spy satellites than on incoming ICBMs because uh, the problem with ICBMs is that from the point of pushing the button over there and the big bang over here is between 18 and 22 minutes long. Yeah. And so, you know, the whole thing about how to defend ourselves under attack is to be able to identify the boost phase and take them out in the ballistic phase and before they make reentry because if they're merved, uh, they break apart into gazillions of targets and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So what HARP would do is take them out before reentry phase. Anything attempting to reenter 
would re-enter through the electrically charged gas, assuming we had enough time to put it up. Yeah. That's a hell of an assumption. I know. But it's, it's more likely that we could put this thing up and tinker it so that we could take out passing spy satellites. So if we were about to launch something on the ground, we could poke out their eyes. Now, there is evidence that while communicating with the deeply submerged submarine fleet or in some other, for some other reason, HARP was up and running the night that Columbia re-entered. HARP was running for 90 minutes prior to loss of signal and continued running for another 90 minutes. Yeah. So it's quite possible that HARP contributed to the destruction of the orbiter. And the, the evidence for this is uh, from a couple of places. A number of folks have examined the official NASA investigation and concluded that the investigation was bogus, that it was politically motivated rather than science-driven, and that they came to a politically expedient uh, explanation as opposed to a correct scientific explanation, and in fact, buggered some of the evidence. I didn't go into the evidence that got buggered in the book because uh, other people have done it elsewhere, and I simply direct the reader if they're interested to go there, yeah. particularly uh, a website called Columbia's Sacrifice. And there's a link to to it from my website. Uh, Columbia Sacrifice was put up by John Hicks, who was a, an engineer at Hughes Aircraft. And, and Hicks's specialty was orbiter reentry dynamics. And working at Hughes, his, his job was uh, when things broke to find out why they broke. And so when the when the Columbia went down, he immediately went, "Oh, this is you know this is what I've trained my entire life to investigate," and went into it and and found all these problems and concluded that the the orbiter did not was not taken out by a burn through which which systematically shut down system after system after system, but in fact. Everything, all the electronics went down simultaneously at a single event, and he concluded that that single event was was hitting the HARP uh, uh, plasma field. Yeah, and you make a great point about uh, HARP in that just because people try to add elements to HARP as part of conspiracy theory doesn't mean that the government's not doing it. It just might mean that it's not necessarily a part of HARP, and that there's a lot of uh, projects going on that we don't even know about, and it's just HARP gets blamed just because we've, we've heard about it. Right, right, exactly. Uh, I, I, I bow to you. You said exactly what I would say on the subject. <laughs> um, let's move on to uh, the chemtrail versus contrail uh, discussion. What sort of struck me is, uh, like I said, I've really only done peripheral investigation into the chemtrail versus contrail uh, situation. And uh, just to clear this up, sort of, the real difference between a contrail and a chemtrail at, at, at the base of it all is that a contrail is is what we know of as the stuff that comes out of the jet when it's flying around. And when you change it to a chemtrail, really it's that there's the added intention, intentional spraying of something additional to the uh, the refuse from flying the jet, right? That's a, sort of the, the main difference between the two, uh, contrail and chemtrail. Well, yeah, I, I could, I could kind of go along with that. that that's a, a rough paraphrasing of, of way I was putting it. I was kind of tiptoeing around it. I, I don't believe I came right out and gave a definition because there is this popular misconception that it, if the contrail persists, it is a chemtrail. And I say that with uh, with some trepidation. It is a misconception. Yeah. Um, what I can prove is that the persistence of a contrail is not a marker of, not an indication of its contents. And so 
there is this theory that there is a covert spraying program going on, and the covert spraying program has been labeled contrails, excuse me, chemtrails, yeah. because of these strangely persistent contrails that are seen across the, across North America and Europe and now the, virtually all the world that they've been seen in Antarctica. Now, the problem here is that we're dealing with those who are scientifically challenged and those who, um, I believe there's also a, an element of intentional disinformation. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that a lot of the nonsense is comes from official sources to discredit because there is a spraying program, or rather there is a great deal of, of circumstantial evidence that I think, uh, I think if I were, if I were uh, on an episode of Perry Mason, I'd win. <laughs> There's enough circumstantial evidence to mount a successful case at, at law on this. As to whether it's real or not, boy, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people have gotten hung on circumstantial evidence that turned out not to be too right. What I can prove is that there is global warming. The Earth is getting warmer. NASA can prove this. There is unfortunately a large number of theories about why the Earth is getting warmer, and the current latched-on cause libre is that greenhouse gases are causing the global warming. Now, the theory that greenhouse gases causes global warming is the the only one talked about in the press because it is it, it quite literally is the policy of the press to only talk about it. I have friends who are who write for science magazines who have told me on the DNQ that they have been told by their editors that the scientific press now has a standing policy not to publish any material that is negative to the greenhouse gases cause global warming theory. So we're, we're huh. getting this theory shoved down our throat. Yeah. And the reason for this is that it has a lot of, uh, it can make a number of people very serious political hay. But it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. What I can tell you is that because of global warming, because of this theory, there are mitigation efforts. And, the, and most people have heard of the Kyoto Protocols, and uh, which grew out of the Earth Summit in Rio, which which uh, final publication of that was Agenda 21, which was the agenda for the 21st century, which is the driving document of our of our lives. And most people have never heard of it, much less have a clue what the United Nations intends to do with us via it. Uh, that's about as deep into conspiracy theory as I get in the book, is simply mentioning that it exists. And you can do your own due diligence to find out which, which concentration camp you're going to be sent to. <laughs> what I can prove is that starting in 1990s, excuse me, 1979, famed physicist Freeman Dyson had this bright idea that if greenhouse gases are the real cause for global warming, and it really needs to have something done about it, one thing we could do was by making the Earth shinier, more solar energy would be reflected back into space, less solar energy, less solar heat would get into the, into the atmosphere so that we could continue to lock up, uh, generate more heat down here and balance it out with less heat getting in. This comes under the, under the heading of geoengineering. Ge 
geoengineering schemes have been uh, bandied about since the late 1980s. After Freeman Dice has said it, it was about another decade before anybody really took it seriously. Yeah. The United States government actually started, started uh, funding research into it almost immediately through Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Lawrence Livermore has spent better than 20 years tinkering with ideas of, uh, of mitigation. And their, their conclusion was that if we inject shiny dust, particularly aluminum and barium, into the top of the atmosphere, this would increase the Earth's reflectivity enough to balance out the greenhouse gases. And uh, uh, Edward Teller, the, found, the father of the hydrogen bomb and associate director of Lawrence Livermore, presented this at a uh, scientific workshop on uh, global catastrophes and wrote an article about it for the Wall Street Journal. And as we now know, Lawrence Livermore has spent in excess of $200 million in investigating this. And other agencies, after Teller formally presented it, have looked at it. And we now have had major international scientific bodies of great repute, such as SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, and the United Nations IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, have looked at this and said, yeah, hey, you know, th this would work. Yeah, uh, we have the technology. It would cost about a billion a year, but, uh, you know, this would this would allow us to continue burning fossil fuels and so forth. Yeah. But, and all of the agencies who look at this thing all have come to the same but. Yeah. The environmental and legal hurdles and political problems would be so high that they could never do this and tell anybody about it. Yeah. And that's where the paper trail stops. And the, the evidence strongly supports that rather than saying, well, we can't do it, let's go on to something else, they actually have started doing it co covertly. Now, there is, there is some, some aspects to this that I found rather chilling, and I mention them very briefly. Uh, again, the book is 400 pages of what I can prove with minimal speculation, almost no conspiracy theory. So I, when I came up on obvious conspiracy theories, I would put them in a couple of paragraphs and, and, and move on. Yes. And one of, the, one of the ones I ran into was that a number of other scientific organizations had look, looked at these geoengineering schemes and said, but wait a minute, if you inject the dust too low in the atmosphere, instead of mitigating global warming, you'll exacerbate global warming. Yeah. And I suggest, what if they are doing it covertly uh, on the pretext of saving us from global warming, but they're actually intentionally injecting it too low and so are exacerbating global warming as a pretext to shove a global bureaucracy, a.k.a. global government, down our throat. Yeah. Now, to get back to the beginning of this, there was the, the, the contrail versus chemtrail debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of got off into the chemtrail side of it. I, I, I want to... Uh, I want to say uh, what I did is I spent about 100 pages divided about equally between contrails and chemtrails. Yeah. Because the, the U.S. Air Force says chemtrails are a hoax. It's all nonsense. That, that what you see, these persistent contrails you see, are just that. They're completely natural, completely normal. It's not a problem. Go away. Yeah. And, uh, and they also say they're benign. And that is BS. Yes. Um, in uh, the, the the environmental disaster that is 
contrails is just beginning to to bubble up in the in the collective consciousness of the scientific community. Just since the no-fly days uh, of following September 11th, uh, when they actually saw what contrails did and went, oh my goodness, have they realized that an awful lot of the clouds in the sky are man-made clouds, yeah. and that we have that that the, uh, the head of meteorology at MIT concluded that all the warming over North America for the last 20 years can be directly attributed to persistent contrails. Yeah. yeah. Now there is also this whole thing as we as we began this conversation about whether a persistent contrail is a chemtrail or not, and I go at length into the science of what forms contrails, when contrails form, why they form, how they form, when they form, yeah. uh, where they form, and what conditions are, are necessary. And what I discovered in the course of this is that when I first saw contrails, when I first saw chemtrails, uh, it was 1996, I was writing the, the Heart book, and I spent uh, a lot of the time lying in a lounge chair in my, in my garden thinking about what I was going to write and looking up at the sky. Yeah. And I saw these huge billowing contrails that just persisted forever. I mean, they just stayed there all day. And, and the blue sky of morning became a pearly white opalescence of afternoon. Mm -hmm. And it just amazed me that you, you get that the 6 o'clock news guy would say, another lovely cloudless day, and the sky is freaking white. <laughs> and I, I couldn't figure out whether, you know, I was just too hungover to, to grasp what was going on or the, or the guy on the TV show was like really really drunk. Uh, uh, and so my first thought was, well, there are three possibilities. Either the jet fuel has changed, or the jet engines have changed, or the atmosphere itself has changed. Yeah. And in the course of researching this book, I discovered that it's all three. Mm -hmm. That um, that the current generation of, uh, of aircraft jet engine uses the high-bypass turbofan, and that creates a condition that favors persistent contrails. Also, the JP-8 fuel, and I don't go into the jet fuel, I mentioned it in passing, and then I don't go into it because it was, I could not find good paperwork that I could understand well enough to be able to, to rewrite and regurgitate to, to, to my readers so they could understand it too. Yeah. So I just, I just put it out there and then kept on. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the atmosphere is changing. With global warming, the air is getting warmer, or it should be getting warmer. Warmer air means able to hold more, more moisture. More moisture means more contrails. Uh, we've also discovered something called global dimming. Global dimming just hit on the uh, on on the scientists' uh, view screens about 2002. Yeah. Um, this is a, a wholly new and unexpected phenomenon, but uh, it, it could it's probably proof that there is a, a covert spraying program to um, to reduce the amount of sunlight reaching us. If not, it indicates something else is going on with the atmosphere, and nobody has a clue what it might be. Certainly the atmosphere has changed, the jet fuel has changed, and the jet engines have changed, all of which contribute to the persistence of a contrail. And persistent contrails are not a brand new phenomenon. I ran into one website with a, with a guy on the website 
proudly proclaims that he knows, he explains in annoying detail <laughs> how the covert spraying program began on December 7th, 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the, the, I assume that means he finally looked up on December 7th, 1999 <laughs> and went, what the heck is that? Yeah. I've been seeing them since 96. My group was discussing them in 95. Generally, the uh, the term is credited with uh, uh, with having been coined by uh, uh, William Thomas, but he 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 used it in '98, so it had been around for quite a bit uh, a while before he was he's allegedly coined it. I went on a on a research campaign to figure out. I watched old movies looking for uh, for persistent contrails, yep. and the oldest one I could find was 1985, the opening scene of Murphy's Romance with. Uh, 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 James Garner and Sally Field. Mm -hmm. Garner is driving out across the Montana Big Sky country uh, out to a ranch, and the, the Big Sky has a, a, a contrail, one contrail that takes up a third of the sky from horizon to horizon. Wow. Now, this is 1985. Now, I've, I found that persistent contrails were actually a problem during World War II, that the stealthiness of by, uh, bomber squadrons was compromised by leaving persistent contrails pointing back to the bases they'd taken off from. Yeah, so the gist of a lot of it is that even if the chemtrail uh, conspiracy or concept is, is, is not around, even if it's not real, which we think that probably there is evidence that it's going on, but even if it isn't, that there's a whole other branch here of the contrail that is real, that is a form of air pollution, and that, that, that definitely is happening. Absolutely. I uh, document the extreme problems caused by persistent contrails. Yeah. And that's uh, so, so, so just what mainstream science is willing to recognize, we got a big problem exactly. that needs to be addressed, exactly. that, is, that is not being addressed in the mainstream media. And, and it may be a smokescreen, if you will, to hide an even bigger problem, that there may indeed be uh, a covert spraying program, and the covert spraying program may or may not be good for us. Exactly. And also, additionally, uh, the contrail problem gets couched in with the chemtrail conspiracy, and then it gets even further pushed away from mainstream uh, discussion. Exactly. You call it a chemtrail, and you immediately get yourself lumped in with nutcases because yeah. the Air Force says it's a hoax. If you believe in a hoax, that means you're stupid. Yeah. Oh, boy. And additionally, you, you make a good point here in the chemtrail contrail uh, discussion in the, in the book that based on the logistics of flights and all that stuff, that, that a lot of the more subversive fears with regards to contrails just may not have merit as far as uh, they're going to poison us or they're putting, you know, uh, fluoride in the air to make us breathe or stuff like that uh, just wouldn't reach people or wouldn't it wouldn't get to the targeted population if you were trying to do it in the form of a chemtrail. Uh, not that there isn't pollutants and dangerous things in what they're trying to put in the air, but that uh, sinister chemicals uh, intentionally for ingestion of humans uh, may not be what's going on. Right. There are a good dozen theories as to why this spraying program is taking place. Mm -hmm. One of the theories is mitigate global warming. Uh, and so I cover that one in great detail and prove that there is a lot of scientific subjective, uh, a lot of scientific evidence to show that this could very well be taking place. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there are all these other theories, mm -hmm. and for most of them, I failed to find any 
any any usable material in the open scientific or military literature. Yeah. I mean, this book is based on what I can prove. Mm -hmm. well, I can prove that there are some, okay, one of the theories is that this is a, uh, it's a, it's a good guy thing, that the United States government realizes that there are bad guy terrorists out there, <laughs> and they are spraying, um, uh, they are inoculating us against the, the evil biotoxins that the terrorists intend to, to lay on us. And so we're all being covertly inoculated against the evil. The, the problem is, yes, there are patents for aerial release of inoculants, of, of vaccines. Yeah. But these are all designed to be released like crop dusting stuff, like at 100 feet above your head, not at... 40,000 feet above your head. And I point out that the higher in the atmosphere something is released, the longer it stays in the atmosphere and the further it travels. And I give a couple of examples. Uh, one is, you may recall, I think it was around 02 or 03, the western third of the U.S. was blanketed in a haze for a week or two. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember I was in downtown Reno, Nevada, and we had near whiteout conditions in downtown for three days. You could not see the end of the block for three days. Wow. And people were, were like going, you know, where's all this coming from? And it turned out there had been a dust storm in the Gobi Desert that had gotten a, a, a vast plume of, of dust up into the jet stream. And that the this dust cloud that was visible from Canada to Arizona what had traveled 7,000 plus miles from the Gobi Desert. You may have seen the, 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 the TV specials on the, the, the coral die-offs in the Caribbean. Yeah. Coral had been dying in the Caribbean for a few decades, and they've been trying to figure out what the problem was, and eventually they realized that it was dust mites that live in the, in the dust in the Sahara Desert. Yeah, windstorms on the Sahara were picking dust up, carrying it across the Atlantic and depositing it into the Caribbean where the dust mites were killing the coral. So, um, and I give the example, if a United Airlines flight from Kansas to Chicago were trying to uh, inoculate America against uh, anthrax, the, um, the uh, vaccine released at 29,000 feet would end up inoculating people in Spain, Portugal, and Poland yeah. before, but, 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 but when it finally reached the ground. Yeah. And to sort of bring the whole conversation back to the beginning again, in a way, how extensive do you think this weather modification that's going on today is, and, and what forms do you think it's going on that people could, could recognize? And that's kind of a big picture question. I know, oh, it's but a like big I picture said, question. And I and to be perfectly honest, I have only the least asked. I I have a very small clue. Um, the, the, again, this is not readily available in the uh, in the scientific press, or uh, and the much less so in the military press. Uh, what we get in the military is once they once they have decided to to put an object in the arsenal, we hear about it, such as the the VMAD the vehicle-mounted uh, active denial system. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, uh, the Air Force just, just added it to their arsenal this year. The Marines added it to their arsenal in 2003. Uh, and then we hear about things like Air Force 2025, where they're, where they're looking 30 years in the future to see what we're going to need. And so 
that's all very theoretical. Between the in the arsenal right now and the theoretical is a huge gap. And, uh, you know, I'm not privy to anything secret. I don't know anything secret. I don't want to know anything secret. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you can look at a few things and, and make some guesses. Uh, I do quote at length from an article in Scientific American where a, a civilian scientist under government contract figured out how to move hurricanes at least in his computer. His, his simulations allowed him to neatly control simulated hurricanes. Yeah. And he concluded that with the future technology, we should be able to do this to real hurricanes. And one can speculate, well, do we have the technology necessary to accomplish what he what he's talking about. And in the open scientific literature, is, there's a big question mark. We may indeed have the technology, but it's, it's far from, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not technical. I'm a professional writer. I know how to put periods, I know how to put sentences and words together. I'm a little vague on how to put, you know, weather weapons together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This uh, mini question here sort of popped into my head. Are there harp facilities in other countries, do other countries have their own versions of HARP, or is HARP the uh, the only game in town as far as the, that sort of facility? Well, you're going to get a lot of answers to that question, depending on who you ask. Uh, as best I know, HARP uses the APTI patents, and so it is technically the only one capable of doing that. Yeah. However, they may have sublet the patent rights. Uh, there may be uh, similar technologies under development. I know that there is a facility being built in uh, Greenland that seems uh, to be a mirror of the HARP technology, but somewhat different. Um, there are a number of uh, HARP technically is an ionospheric heater, and there are dozen or so ionospheric heaters in use around the world, though HARP is the only one that is acknowledged to have the unique patented ability to focus the energy coming out of the field. Yeah, like that sort of patent right type of thing, like if I was a sinister Russian, you know, general or whatever, would you really have to uh, adhere to the patents? Like could the Chinese really have to adhere to uh, the APTI patents, or could they just build their own and be like... We don't know what you're talking about. That's a good question. That's you know? a good question. Um, I would I would say that if you're a bad guy, you're going to do bad things. There and, you go. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, uh, a, a, as they say, locks only keep honest people honest. Exactly. We just really scratched the surface here uh, on on the book, and there's just tons and tons of material in there. And I hope all the listeners definitely check it out and, and pick up the book because, like I said, we we just scratched the surface. There's there's a ton of material in there we haven't even talked about, and we haven't had a chance to talk about that. Uh, that is worthwhile reading for, for anybody interested in, in these branches of the esoteric. What do you have on your plate for the future? Uh, last time we had you on, you were, you were talking about this book, so uh, maybe we can get a tease on what we may be hearing from, from you in the next episode. Well, I'm actually still negotiating with a couple of publishers on what the next book is going to be, and I don't want to... Tip your hand. Yeah. Um, I can say I am going to be one of uh, one of the ten featured speakers at Conspiracy Con this year. Mm -hmm. Memorial Day weekend, uh, May 26, 27, uh, I will be speaking in uh, downtown San Jose, California, at the Crown Plaza Hotel at Conspiracy Con 7. Uh, anybody who can get to California, uh, I've been to Conspiracy Con a couple of times, and it is just always an amazing event. With, with some of the 
top people on the planet. Uh, every year, either Nick Begich or I are there. There's uh, Jim Mars is often there. I mean, there's some there's some heavy hitters there that I, I recommend your uh, listeners uh, join us. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's Conspiracy Con at the Crown Plaza Hotel in downtown San Jose, California, on May 26th, 27th, 2007. And you're going to be one of the featured speakers there talking about weather warfare, right? Exactly. And they can find our information on Conspiracy Con at www.conspiracycon.com. And, of course, the book here we're talking about on the episode was Weather Warfare, the Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. How can people pick it up through the website or uh, how about, like, Amazon and all that good stuff? Everywhere. Awesome. Uh, the, the, if you want to get an autographed copy, mm-hmm. buy it from Adventures Unlimited Press. Uh, you can go to our website at adventuresunlimitedpress.com or call our 1-800 number, 1-800-718-4514. That's 1-800-718-4514. If you want to get it cheap, you can get it from uh, Amazon. Amazon has it at 30% off, so you can get it cheap from Amazon, but it won't be autographed. Yep. Uh, best for me uh, uh, would be for you to go to your local bookseller. Yep. Uh, if you get it from your local bookstore, that encourages them to stock and restock the book mm-hmm. so that more people down the road will be exposed to it, so we'll get more sales down, down the road. But, uh, you know, if you're one of those people who need to buy now, <laughs> buy it from Amazon uh, or uh, buy it from a Adventures Unlimited Press right this minute, and and, uh, I'm working at Adventures Unlimited Press, and I'll be happy to autograph a copy to you. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much. And people can find out more information on you and your previous books and all that good stuff at jerryesmith.com, J-E-R-R-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H.com. Jerry, once again, it was great to have you on the program. Your depth uh, of understanding and research into the conspiracy world is is really just Far and on one of the best I've heard in a long, long time, and it's always great talking to you in education in and of itself. So thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Ben All of America Audio. Big thanks to Jerry E. Smith for coming back on the show. Hopefully we can have him back next year or whenever his next book comes out and have another discussion with him on Esoterica at large. Of course, you can find out more information on Jerry E. Smith at his website, www.jerryesmith.com, J-E-R-R-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H.com, all one word. Check it out. And the book, of course, is Weather Warfare, The Military's Plan to Draft Mother Nature. And since I'm feeling better this week, we're going to dive on into Ben All of America Audio listener feedback. This one comes from John Ludi, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, L-U-D-I, John Ludi, who bills himself as the troubadour of the apocalypse, and includes a URL of johnludi.com. I presume that's the headquarters of the troubadour of the apocalypse. And let me spell that for you, John, L-U-D-I dot com, John com. Here's what he has to say. Tim, I just wanted to thank you for the excellent job you were doing. People who earnestly and honestly contribute to the world don't get enough props. That's in quotes. I've listened to pretty much all of your podcasts and have been greatly impressed with your level of thoughtfulness and intelligence in the way you conduct your show. In response to one theme that you have brought up several times, I do have an answer for you. The reason why young people, people under 30, are not involved in ufology is that they are quite abysmally stupid as a generation, with the exception of yourself and about another .03% of that particular demographic. They are far too busy fighting virtual aliens on their PS3s to be bothered with the real ones, and their rudimentary intelligence are preoccupied with American Idol and how many shifts at Starbucks it will take before they can afford a boob job. Their sense of history only goes back about a week or so, 
and their understanding of the world beyond their peer groups and what they get from the mainstream media is enough to fill a thimble. They are even less educated than Gen Xers, and that is saying a lot. They are our future, and thus we are doomed. Anyway, great show. Keep it up. The world needs more Tim Benalls in it. John Ludi, the troubadour of the apocalypse, johnludi.com. And that's Ludi with, uh, spelled L-U-D-I, johnludi.com. Well, John, what a dismal letter you've sent me, but I will respond. First of all, thank you for the props. I appreciate it. Hope you checked out my interview on Red Ice, and I uh, got a chance to hear what I have to say on a variety of esoteric topics. You know, I do what I do. As far as young people go, I, I tend not to disagree with you in some sense. I think that uh, many of the young people, 18 to 25 maybe, are, for the most part, retarded. With obvious exceptions, like the ones who are listening to this program, and people who are just generally smart enough to have an interest and pursue it, and not be bogged down in trying to fit in with, uh, you know, the life they've been sold by MTV. And I think you do raise a good point if we draw this into the ufology discussion and why young people aren't gravitating towards ufology. Not only is ufology doing a bad job of recruiting, but the recruitment pool in and of itself, as you point out, is awful. So, the whole scenario boils down to a blind man looking for a needle in a haystack. We persevere, and hopefully more people will come to ufology, more young people. There is a vacuum in that area of the field, and and I get emails from young people a lot. I'm surprised now. I think as we've as we've pushed this message here on Banal of America Audio that that young people now are are coming to us and contacting us. And I'm getting your emails, folks. Just trust me. I'll, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'm bombarded at times as it is. So they're out there. I think maybe more organization would help. I don't know. There's no point in going off on a ramble. I hear your thoughts, John Ludi. Um, I have a little more faith than you, but at the same time, it's probably blind faith um, and cautious optimism, I guess. But certainly it's an uphill battle. If you want to be a part of Banal of America audio listener feedback, go to banalofamerica.com. Click the contact button in the top right-hand corner. There's a goofy picture there and all the information you need to contact us here at banalofamerica.com. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to appearing on Banal of America audio listener feedback. Also, check out theusofe.com, that's the Banal of America message board, if you want to discuss the show, discuss particular episodes, or just talk about esoterica in general, definitely check out the Banal of America message board, www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Moving right along now, it's time for the thanks. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Jovi, and Ralph Molesworth, they're the banalofamerica.com staff. They are the heart and soul of this operation. Thank you to the great staff at BOA. Banalofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. What we do here is not easy. It takes time and it takes money, which is why we have a PayPal button at Banalofamerica.com. If you appreciate what we do with Banalofamerica Audio and Banalofamerica.com and you want to help support the series and the website, click the PayPal button at Banalofamerica.com and make a donation. Next week on Banal of America Audio, Farah Yurduzu, Turkey's first female ufologist. We're going to go international again, folks, and it is going to be a wild ride. Farah Yurduzu tells us about an amazing array of esoteric material 
from the country of Turkey. We're going to be dealing in UFOs, ancient underground cities, Turkish history, and how it relates to various aspects of esoterica, including ET contact and shapeshifters, UFO landings and sightings in Turkey, what branch of esoteric research hasn't made the leap over to Turkey yet, also Turkish men in black, you know those old rumors about Noah's Ark being on Mount Ararat in Turkey, we're going to get Farah's perspective on that story, and of course tons and tons more. After we taped this one and I got a chance to listen to it again, I was just amazed at all the different areas of esoterica we cover, all emanating from Turkey and just getting an amazing alternative perspective to what we already know about the esoteric. That's going to be next week at banalofamerica.com. I swear I'm going to have the preview up at BOA soon, and we will have a Jerry E. Smith one, I promise. I guess at this point we'd have to call it a recap, but we'll have it up at banalofamerica.com and the Farrah Year to Zoo preview soon, I promise. We're almost back to firing on all cylinders, so... Bear with us and enjoy the bumpy ride. And on that note, we wrap up the week. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off.